Monday, June 28th, the final Monday in June. This is LA Podcast. There's no holiday. I need to say something. I don't know what there is to say about this. this is LA Podcast. I'm Scott Frazier here with Alyssa Walker and Matt Tinoco. Uh, our good friend Hayes Davenport is on vacation. He's on fire watch. That's true. <laughs> I mean, he is literally watching fires yeah. start, I think. He's standing in the woods being like, don't burn, don't burn, don't burn, don't burn. It's the, uh, it's like whatever, the what Torch was... of Gondor or whatever in Lord of the Rings where you just see the line of <laughs> beacons being lit. Um, that's pretty much what Hayes is doing up north. Meanwhile, out here, we are just sitting in our rooms waiting for everything to catch fire, I guess, is the state of the state. I mean, it's in the mid 80s, so I'm fine because it's not 150. Like the radio <laughs> was telling me it's going to be in Portland today and tomorrow, which is really where, I mean, California will have the fires, but like, you know. Watch. 115 in Portland is really hard for me to wrap my brain around. I'm, I'm struggling yeah. with that just conceptually um, as somebody who's had to live with those brutal temperatures a lot throughout my life. I never imagined that the Pacific Northwest of all places would experience that. that. Seattle's rounding to 110 is like, <laughs> it's wild. Yeah, at least we don't have like a holiday coming up this week where like people throw <laughs> bombs bombs at each other. National Bomb Thrower Day. Into the woods around their house. <laughs> and into the, the tree mortality, one and two trees yeah. are no longer fine. living. It'll be fine. I'm sure it'll be fine. I'm sure that we won't be back here next week talking about half the state being on fire. We'll just be talking about our normal 4th of July thing, which is that we have the worst air quality of anywhere on the planet. Oh, I can't wait for that. I can't wait for air, that. Air quality approximating so um, something like the equator of planet Venus the days <laughs> after the 4th of July is, is, our, is our normal and we're okay with that. Look, now is the time to get your MERV 13 filters before everybody else takes them away. <laughs> That's, it's do it now as like, you know, while it's still June. Uh, we have a great interview with Lexis Olivier Ray from LA Taco coming up later this week. Uh, that is going to be a standalone episode. Keep your eyes open for that one. Uh, but we have a lot of news to get into today. First, let's start with some LA stories. Alyssa, do you want to go first? Oh boy, was I out there this week. And I mean, outside of my house without a mask on. It was quite jarring. Have you done this? Have you gone to an event, <laughs> a, an in-person I've, event? I've been going to places. Have you heard about these? With in-person people? Yeah. Wow. Well, I... What'd went, you do? I went to the Climate Resolve Gala. I was the MC of the Climate Resolve Gala, our good friends at Climate Resolve. Um, we've had Bryn Lindblad on the show before they are listeners and fans. And um, you get there and you show your vaccination card. It was in that little street, you know, right by the Lucrette's Innovation Campus, how they you closed the street. You actually had to show your vaccination card. Yeah. That still hasn't happened. If you, do, if you didn't show it, you had to do a rapid test. Um, on site. They had like a little testing thing. And then, um, yeah, once you went past the bouncer, but it was like a mask bouncer, uh -huh, you, mask could, bouncer. you could take your mask off and go into... No, that's a show I would watch. <laughs> <laughs> the new light, the new careers of mask bouncer. And then if you went inside to like use the bathroom or whatever, you had to put your mask on, but it was an outdoor event. So everyone just... Didn't. Frolicked. And yeah, it was... Super fun. It was so fun to be, to see people that I literally haven't seen in two years or more. And it was really fun to, um, 
introduce a lot of great honorees and special guests and to make fun of council member Kevin DeLeon for waffling on the BRT project in Eagle <laughs> who I then ran into afterwards when I went out to dinner. He was so, sitting there. He was like, you. <laughs> Matt, what do you got? I was, uh, so one of the things that bookmarked the beginning of lockdown for me was being at the Griffith Park Observatory on the last day it was open and like being inside and, and seeing a couple of tourists just coughing their lungs out and being like, mm. oh, I wonder. Um, but I wonder. good thing, the observatory, as I guess potentially maybe another sort of bookend, is open again for visitors. So if you want to go visit the observatory, it's open Fridays through Sundays until 10 p.m. at night. And that's what I did on Friday night, which is my understanding was the first day it was open. So it was going into the observatory. The only recommendations are if you're unvaccinated, you're encouraged to wear a mask, but that's about it. Very few people were masked inside for better or for worse. Um, but it was nice to, I mean, like I live relative, I, I walk up to the observatory. So as soon as I learned that it was reopened, I was like, oh, well, I'm not really doing anything right now. And my watch tells me that my steps are low for the day. So yeah. I guess I should just go up. And that's exactly what I did. And it was lovely to go inside and look at the, there's a lot of stuff in there. If you don't really go, I think a lot of people who are from here kind of write it off as like a tourist place, but it is a full science museum when you can learn a whole bunch about not just like space, but like also like LA's local position in like astronomy in like the 20th century, which is like fun. And also if you're in the downstairs area, there's a little information desk. Uh, make sure to ask to see the meteorite. You can, there's a little meteorite that you can, you know, if you want to hold, you mm. can. So it's a, as, as the uh, docents told me, it is probably, the, it is not probably, it is the oldest thing you will ever touch in that it is a piece of material that is older than the solar system. Um, so if you want to hold a like five or six billion year old rock, you can do that at the Griffith Observatory, which is now open till 10, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. This sponsored by Griffith Observatory. But do they have like hand sanitize it after everybody touches it? No, I don't think many people ask about it, but I was, that was one of the things I was wondering if there was going to be a protocol. And I think, uh, the, the gentlemen who are just chatting at the desk with each other, like, well, it's great to be back or whatever. Um, tossing it out to the crowd. No, I, I don't think I don't think anybody had asked yet. So I, I want to believe that I was the first person to touch the meteorite wow. in 15 months. <gasps> um, well, congrats to you. <laughs> uh, my LA story really briefly is just that I had the experience kind of was on hold during the course of the pandemic of uh, going to a, a familiar neighborhood via an unfamiliar metro route. And in this case, I was headed to Koreatown. I was trying a bus, a new bus for me, the Coronado Street bus uh, 603. 603? Yeah. And I think they have longer buses on the 603. I saw, remember they used to be those cute little oh, the shorties? 40, they're, the 40, they're the 45. Foot and down. I think I saw a longer one on the way here because we're doing this on Sunday, the first day of the new schedules. In, uh, in classic, trying Metro for the first time fashion, trying a Metro route for the first time fashion, pretty much everything went wrong. Uh, I had to walk a half mile away for a detour once I got to the stop. Mm. Had to really hustle because there was a bus coming in like two minutes and then another one coming in like an hour. Mm. Uh, so I did that, rode the bus down to Rampart and then I walked a mile-ish into K-Town. Mm. That, that's riding Metro for you. Um, but it was 
it was fine. And actually walking through Rampart was really nice. It's just like so good to see people out, lots of families, uh, people walking around with their kids and everything. And it just felt very, I don't know, it was just exciting. It was exciting to, you know, to, to take a, an unfamiliar trip through the city again and sort of expand uh, personal boundaries. So more of that, please. But let's get into what actually happened this week, starting with people who are leaving LA. What is what is the big news about LAX this week, Matt? The big news is that uh earlier in the week we had the official groundbreaking on the on the Metro Connector station uh that will eventually connect the apparently to open Crenshaw light rail line to Los Angeles International Airport. Uh, and well, you only- say apparently to open. I think it's important to interject here that not only is the Crenshaw line very late, but at the monthly update that they do for the line during uh, metro meetings each month, they said that it has progressed 0.1% over the course of the last month, which is, I think, a new low for progress. I still feel like it's just an asymptote and it's never going to be. It's never going to get there until until 2027 when they can just open the whole thing at once, I guess. <laughs> I, I, mean, I guess we'll get there. But um, not only it's the, this is basically just, but I guess kind of to the point though, on the like, how are we building the Crenshaw line? If we just going to go right there, the the aviation, or I don't remember, it's 96th Street. I don't remember the actual exact station name. 96th Street and Aviation. 90, 96th Street and Aviation. The station that will actually connect into LAX is not actually a station that is being built as a part of the original Crenshaw line. It is being added on after the fact, sort of in, I mean, I you two probably know more about that why than I do, but like it's, it's another station. And it's not just a station either. There's also a considerable... Uh, consult. There's a rental. Uh, what I assume will be a giant parking structure. The largest in the country. The largest rental car, car. rental. Yeah. I mean, it's the it is it's the same thing as with like stadiums, right? Like every time there's a new one, it's the largest one until the next one gets built, and then it's like, what? Why do we even care about that? We could <laughs> have also put the train to, to the stadiums, to. but we didn't do that either. Um, the, the answer to your question, Matt, is it was the, the reason why it is not being built as part of the uh, original Crenshaw line is because in classic Los Angeles fashion, uh, we decided to build the Crenshaw line without actually deciding mm. that it was going to serve LAX. Um, then when we started work on, uh, or sorry, when um, the politicians started shopping around Measure M, it was like, okay, well, should we? how should we connect the Crenshaw line to the airport? How should we connect rail to the airport? And for, uh, for capital, all caps reasons, uh, it was decided that we couldn't use the Century and Aviation which uh, station, which you would expect them to use. It lines up directly with uh, the, the airport concourses. Um, it served is served by transit already with the buses there. The bus center. Um, however, LAX said, no, we want you to build a brand new station just to serve us. So now we have 96th. Here we go. Unfortunately, that means that the Crenshaw line is going to have to close maybe the day that it opens, potentially. Yeah. Who knows? Five good days of service before. <laughs> and then Never said they'd be the good. Thing, there was the Numble documents that showed that there was still a piece of land that they had not even acquired. Yeah. It was a Hertz office. Mm-hmm. 
Hertz went out of business during the pandemic, which, um, or declared bankruptcy or whatever, like as, as a good reason to build a car rental, giant car rental facility, because the car rental industry is so profitable so and healthy. And healthy. Um, but they couldn't even acquire this little bit piece of land because the bankruptcy like slowed this down. So we have this like dragging on for years now, tiny, tiny parcel that needed to be purchased. That is the, is part of the reason for, for the delay, which is just bonkers. We, we have been planning this forever. It's true. I mean, in the time that we've been planning this, it's kind of funny, like LAX has purchased an entire neighborhood of Los yeah. Angeles. <laughs> But just not that one. Well, yeah, I mean, well, they don't really care about the, <laughs> the transit aspect. Of it. But there was this story in the in the LA Times that a lot of people were taking issue with because the framing was: uh, is this what's going to this missing link? Is this what's going to be finally our crowning glory of uh, our rail system? And is it? I'm gonna say no. Oh, that's disappointing. Why? Why not? <laughs> I thought that I thought that this was it. I mean, you might be able to argue that for the regional connector, which is also behind. But I think <laughs> I think this idea. Uh, some people were talking about this online. This idea that we, first of all, that we don't have transit to the airport, which is not true. We it's do quite have. A lot. We have quite a bit, and and it's it's actually quite convenient and uh, very uh, do, doesn't require. Um, <laughs> Scott Meta. Uh, no, no. Well, the, not all the flyway routes are back to running, which is, first of all, a bit, you know, problematic. Which ones are not running still? The only ones that are running are Union Station and Van Nuys. Right. Remember, we had a lot of them. And then there was like fewer. Hollywood and Long Beach. Yeah, Hollywood is sometimes one that I had taken. Um, mm-hmm. But obviously, Union Station is convenient to a lot more people. But we do have options and we could expand those options. And especially since we talked before, before on another episode about how Uber and Lyft are so hard for people to get coming, especially coming out of the airport and maybe even going to the airport too. So it would seem like this would be a great time for, you know, the airport to promote mm-hmm. or add more uh, buses. Well, to this these is, it's, it's interesting uh, because the, the thing that we need to take into account here is that we're dealing with two agencies. One is LAX and one is Metro and LAX is the City Department. La- Lawa. Lawa. That's right. LA World Airport. Uh, Lawa, which just makes me think of the little men from Star Wars, <laughs> the Jawas. Um, the LA- Ewoks, too. Either one. Ewoks, yes. <laughs> either. Uh, but Lawa is really only focused on air travel. They make a lot of money from. Uh, the like in airport concessions, they make a lot of money from selling franchises to airlines to run out of LAX. They don't really care how you get there. In fact, I think their preference would be that you just drive, pay for parking and shut the hell up about it. (laughs) (laughs) But despite that, LAX is the agency or LAWA is the agency that runs the LAX flyaway buses and they hate the flyaway. They do not want to do it. So it doesn't really surprise me that there are a bunch of routes that they haven't even opened back up yet because uh, the only reason that they do this is because they were forced to as a result of a lawsuit at some point. So uh, a LAWA suit. 
Um, but they do not actually care about it. And Metro frequently has been the agency that it falls to to actually publicize that the flyaway even exists. So um, the the relationship between the two agencies is is not great. Although, I mean, you're, you're right. The flyaway is pretty good. If you're close to it, then it can be really convenient. It's quite a bit better now too, now that it doesn't have to sit in the... Um, oh, yeah, I the mean, lanes. the eternal yeah. issue was if you're at like terminal four, five and six and trying to leave the airport, right. yeah. the bus will come, but then it's already full. Now there are bus lanes at the horseshoe. There's bus, rings, bus lanes at the downstairs horseshoe and it just, it moves much more quickly, which means that they can offer a much more reliable level of service mm. that like, like the bottlenecking was a pretty regular issue, at least in my experience at LAX in the before, yeah. like before it, before it was redone. Oh, yeah. You could get to the airport really fast and then you'd sit in the horseshoe. For hours. Like to, to go back to the people mover, like why do people have this impression that transit, like specifically rail transit to the airport is like a... a huge difference maker. I mean, th- I, again, this goes back to, is it like our inferiority? Like this is like a joke that people have just said for, for years that like you couldn't take it to the airport when in fact you could. <laughs> the green line has a shuttle. In most airports I've gone to, you can't like walk right into, you know, from a rail connection. The ones where you can though, it rules. Yeah, I mean, no, honestly, I mean, <laughs> it's so great. But like, there's always some amount of like walking or sure. transferring or getting on a even a shuttle to get around, you know, terminals. Internal and airport shuttle. Yeah, you're to, already going to make another journey unless somebody drops you off in a car. I mean, right? the question is like, okay, so if you were to look at an example of a place where you can take rail to literally to the door of the airport, uh, one example would be Atlanta. Do we aspire to have Atlanta's rail system? Because that's not right. It's not good, right? And it's like, not like Denver good spent so much money oh to get the train God, to I get never, out to. Shout out to Phil Washington. Shout out Phil. I never told Phil. my story about that. <laughs> Go on, no, finish what you were saying. He, well, we they, you know, you, it's like where you put the airport is actually quite a bit more important when you think about if building the connection to it. So Denver's airport is so far away mm-hmm. from the downtown and. They, you know, the airport was there for two decades before they decided they should, you know, get the the train all the way there. And I, I attempted to take that the last time that I was in Denver, which was several years ago. I was like, oh great, I'm going to take the the new Denver train, which just opened, and it was leaving on a Sunday morning. I got, I ran to get to to Denver Union Station to catch the train because I was going to afraid I was going to be late to my plane. Uh, and the train to the plane was not operating until like after 9 a.m. that day. So I... I, I Why would people be going to the airport I, on a Sunday? God, I mean, you're supposed to be... Uh, Stay an extra in, day. In bed or in church. Uh, so, Go spend more money. Um, so I, I did the Phil Washington sprint to, to catch my train, found out that it wasn't there, and then ended up taking a $50 Uber it's ride. Far. And the other thing, just the last point about the people mover design, I don't know if you looked at it, but it's like an out and back situation. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even go around the horseshoe. Right. It doesn't do a No, it's circle. in the middle. So you'll have to walk to the middle of LAX yes, before you can actually, yes. like you, from your terminal. So people will be like, well, that's not direct enough. I'm going to go get it a cab. Oh, sorry. You also have to walk to LAX. That, that doesn't. <laughs> okay. The walk to the center of, of, the, of the horseshoe doesn't bother me that much. I think that the people mover is going to be really 
good and convenient for people to get out of out of the LAX uh, campus. That said, uh, there's really no case I think to to make that this fundamentally changes the way that transit looks in in LA, especially when you have three different trains to ride from Union Station, where you could walk upstairs, get on a bus. And be there in 25 minutes. Okay, but I mean, that is seven times as expensive. And also, there's no guarantee that LAX will continue offering that service once the metro connection exists. I'm just saying. Lawa, don't do it. Are you there, God? Look, the the better (laughs) option will be to just sit at the red lights on the. I just want to say inferiority complex, if that's what this comes down to, if you don't want people making jokes about there not being a connection to the airport, you should wait to hear the jokes that that are going to be made about what it will actually take to get to the people mover. (laughs) It's not going to be it's not going to be pretty. Okay, let's move a little bit further up the coast back to Venice, our uh, favorite neighborhood in the city. Alyssa was fortunate enough to absorb a uh, Alex Villanueva presser this week or more than one potentially. Well, yeah, what, what's going on he, at the beach? You know, he's doing his campaign and I mean his campaign literally. I mean, he's like using a military his, campaign. <laughs> he's using his ops, um, but he's also, you know, he's running for re-election. So this is, it's very, and, and same with uh, our friend, Joe Buscaino put out his campaign ad and mm-hmm. had a press conference also um, indoors. Well, very centered around Venice as well. His, yeah. his campaign so far, although it was although his was his um, he had his press conference inside now in a ballroom because he didn't want to risk you know being around people that might um, see him. You know. <laughs> so he so he launched his in like a very drab ballroom of a Marriott. Um, so yeah, both of these people are running on this platform of I will arrest every homeless person that mm-hmm. you see. And I think that that is a great place to start with um, with Villanueva's um, press conference where he- I think that the, the difference between the two of them is that Joe Buscaino would put that that message over like stock inspirational music yes. and Villanueva would put it over like the- I don't know, like some sort of Mozart requiem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you can watch for yourself. They they both went out and made videos. Um, and uh, the campaign video, yeah, it kind of has this like, Joe Buscana's campaign video is kind of like a, it's, it's like a truck commercial where he's like, I'm coming, I'm going to get out there. And <laughs> I cleaned up this town, which, you know. But uh, the the press conference the other day that was hosted by the sheriff's department was very interesting because it was like him giving a PowerPoint presentation basically with very, um, uh, I would just say, uh, loose data and numbers to try to back up his claim about how much homelessness is destroying the city, but not in the sense that like the people's whose lives are affected are having trouble. The framing is all around tourism. I want you to listen to this. Th- listen to this clip really fast because um, it's just kind of shocking. He makes this whole argument about how much money people spend when they come to Los Angeles. Right now, there are tourism companies in foreign lands marking off. LA is a place not to go. 
There's no p more powerful image than people assaulting each other in broad daylight on the Strand. Oh yeah, let's go there to visit. So many livelihoods depend on tourism, yet you look at the city council agendas, you look at yesterday's board of supervisors agendas, do you see anything about that anywhere? They don't even mention it. And I'm looking at going, oh Lord Jesus, what are we gonna do? This is a, this is a crisis. We need to take it seriously. These are existential threats to the lives and livelihoods of LA County residents, and all I get from our architects is indifference. Because it's not part of their agenda. It's not part of their woke rationale that we need to leave law enforcement out of the homeless problem. And people are perishing, jobs are being lost, families are being destroyed. Right now there's a USC poll. 10% of LA County residents want to leave. 40% increase just from last year. Again, do you hear anything from the Board of Supervisors, City Council, or the Mayor about that? Why people want to leave? No. He's talking about the housed people of the LA County who are losing their jobs because tourism dollars are gone. This was his whole point. So he's saying that like lives are being destroyed and people are perishing. He's not talking about the people, people who are actually dying on the boardwalk. Somebody died this week. Yeah. He is talking Five a about, day. he is trying to, somebody died on the boardwalk today. Yes. I mean, on the boardwalk, yes, five a day. Um, but he's talking, he's trying to make the case and he's going out and making these videos, talking to small business owners and saying that they are telling him that they don't have any tourism money because people are afraid to come here. Mm -hmm. And now he's saying that people are at this poll that, you know, people want to leave, want, uh, to leave, want to flee the city. He said something in there that I'm curious about. He was saying, are you hearing anything about this from our architects? Is he talking about literal building architects? Oh, oh, Scott, this was the highlight of the PowerPoint. <laughs> there is a slide the case he's trying to make is that um, there are the architects of the homelessness crisis mm -hmm. and they are all the elected officials uh, with like a big highlight and double mention for Mike Bonin, who is on like another slide as well. And then he lists all the homeless service providers that are working in Venice. He had a slide about how the salaries that some of the people make, the board, what the board members do, who they are. So his case is that, and, then, and of course, uh, Lhasa, and he has this big slide that says the architects that is, you know, oh, uh, showing that they have, they are now spending money to manufacture this crisis is, is yeah. his argument. I mean, I mean, it's, that narrative is out there a lot. And that's a very, like, it's a very Tucker Carlson narrative yep. is that you have the homeless services industrial complexes out there, as you just said, trying to manufacture more people to serve because that's how their business model works. Which I'm like, that's a difficult thing because I do feel like there's, there is some extent to which in the discussion of quote unquote ending homelessness, there's plenty of valid criticisms of like our existing private social service agencies out there and like how they work and how they largely don't work in many circumstances for the, the end user of the services, as has been said to me many times, like the, per, like the system is, doesn't do a very good job of providing services for the end user in many circumstances and is like kind of works more towards like 
ensuring the social service agency works. But that's very different. Like that's that that's not what Alex Villanueva is saying in this circumstance. And he's leaning on the Tucker Carlson argument of like, well, they just want people to be homeless because then they'll have like, uh, you know, a budget for next year, which like is a really disingenuous way of like, you know, for the most part, everybody who works for the social services agencies do not want people to be homeless. Mm-hmm. That's the entire- they like it's, to be uh, not not doing this work. I and And seeing it, in person, being on the boardwalk and and watching the disinformation that they are trying to spread to the people who the the tourist. I mean, there probably probably are some tourists that they're talking to, but also like the people who live in the neighborhood. And you saw um, Lieutenant Jeff Dietrich, who is the head of the host of mm-hmm. uh, what are they? Host uh, homeless outreach services. I don't know. It's like it's, a team. Host it's, team. It's the sheriff's. Um, excuse for pretending that he cares about it's it's there they'll do it's the sheriff's outreach team so one of the things that they that they do do a lot for that specific team is like in charge of like uh it's gonna rain we need to notify everybody who's like living in the storm drain okay that's a good example that's 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 a that's why that team so you see them out here like in real time and you i overheard them talking to people and saying you know these people they have homes we've told them to leave they're not leaving kind of perpetuating this like service resistance myth but also this incredibly dehumanizing campaign and we heard Villanueva refers to people who were living on the boardwalk as zombies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to to make that leap, like you said, the Tucker Carlson leap, right? Like to not that he wasn't already there, but to but to really just like go into this uh, realm of propaganda. Literally, as somebody died over the weekend in it, you know, was found in a tent. We are in like this treading in like a dangerous, dangerous zone as this deadline is looming. And Mike Bonin presented a plan and he said that he has his, you know, a six week proposal to um, offer shelter to everybody uh, along the boardwalk. They're going in sections and making sure that uh, with the actual homeless service providers, they are, you know, presenting rooms as a Ramada um, hotel that's going to be converted to permanent shelter nearby. Mm-hmm. Um but what's going to happen first? Is there going to be some kind of storming of the beaches on July 4th? Or is there, is he going to back down? Or is he going to make these neighbors so riled up that they will start, you know, committing acts of violence against the people that, you know, he has completely taken away their humanity? I think Dietrich's, uh, if you can, there's a, a YouTube channel, I think it's German Venice who interviewed Dietrich and, D, and in that, uh, Lieutenant Dietrich, who's of the of the host teams, um, it was he's kind of walking it back though. So exactly what you just said, it did seem almost like okay. Well, now that the city of LA has put, I think it's five million towards Bonin's plan. I don't know if that's been fully approved by the council just yet, but it's at least been proposed uh, for the encampment to home model, which has been done a number of times around mm-hmm. the city of LA in, in the recent years. Um, Dietrich's basically was, I mean, he didn't say, no, we're not doing it, but we're going to like, I mean, if the city of LA is doing it this way, then we'll, uh, you know, we, we partners to that. So which is weird to like, I don't know. It, it's, it does, it seems like a situation in which the sheriff's department shouldn't really have that kind of leverage. I, and, and like, is there a way for the city of LA to be like, you need to get off of our turf? I actually, we know that that happens all the time throughout, you know, South LA and like places where the jurisdictions abut, there are uh, frequently disputes between 
line level officers about who should be uh, policing a certain jurisdiction. But I mean, I guess it's just, it, it is indicative of what a strange situation this is for literally the head of the department to be um, shoehorning himself into this situation where he's really not, no, certainly not needed, but also doesn't have uh, necessarily the legal authority to be policing there. As we were discussing this week uh, in our chat, he could claim this as a victory no yeah. matter what. He will say, oh, well, if I hadn't gotten out there and taken my horses and my dune buggies, I was going to this voice. He does not sound like this at all in real life. But um, if I hadn't done that, the city wouldn't have come back with a plan. So no mm -hmm. matter what, it's going to be spun as we put the pressure on. Yeah. So, I mean, it, we'll see whether or not people actually buy that. And of course, we'll see this upcoming weekend, whether or not he does do an amphibious water landing I'm on Venice you. Beach. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I would not put it past them having another vehicle of some sort that uh, they are debuting. We shall see. And <laughs> <laughs> we're actually, we are staying on the West side and staying in, in pretty close proximity to LAX again in our next segment <laughs> where we are going to be talking about city of Hawthorne famous, not for much primarily as uh, the location from which Elon Musk wanted to launch his boring company, uh, Tesla tunnels, et cetera, throughout. SpaceX. Uh, big, also big, SpaceX. Big structures. Big, you know what? Uh, elevators for cars, tubes for cars, and we're launching things to space, that, uh, including a car. Yeah, there's a, there's apparently. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes. I had forgotten about that. Um, <laughs> but unrelated to Elon Musk, Hawthorne has also been in the news lately for their... Uh, proposed cannabis regulation program. Of course, following 2016, state voters uh, voted to allow for cities and counties to make it legal to sell uh, weed to adults throughout the state. Actually, a lot of cities and, or cities and counties throughout the state have not done so still, including uh, a number of cities within Los Angeles County. This has been a slow developing story throughout the course of the past three or so years uh, where city by city, everyone is trying to decide what are the rules that they want to put in place for their location. City of Los Angeles famously has the state's largest uh, legal cannabis dispensary program. Um, and now a former political leader, Herb Wesson, one time city council president, uh, and now guy with a consulting firm is applying to be <laughs> the person who will put together the city of Hawthorne's uh, city regulatory program. Um, where did you guys think Herb Wesson was going to end up after he lost his his race in November to, to Holly Mitchell? I don't think I thought, of that, thought that hard about it, but being a weed lobbyist seems to pencil, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, you like, got to follow the name and, you know, use your the brand that you've got. So, Herb. Villanueva, or not Villanueva, uh, Villaraigosa went to like Herbalife, He went right? to Herbalife. Yeah, a different, <laughs> and then to a different Herb. Yeah, no, he's, it, so I, I feel like it, it definitely tracks, but this was still sort of a, a news item that that caught my eye once, once I actually saw it. This was uh, from... May and actually Hawthorne is scheduled to make a decision about this in the next couple days or weeks. Um, but basically, they put out this uh, they put out this request for respondents to talk about how they would 
actually allow for registration of, of cannabis companies. Uh, that was prompted by a vote that they took in November of 2020 within the city of Hawthorne, stating that they would implement a business tax and bring in some additional tax revenue. Again, this has been the huge incentive for local governments who are always looking for new revenue sources in California. Um, and once that passed with 60-ish percent of the vote, then city of Hawthorne said, okay, now we can start looking at how to legalize this. Herb Wesson, as a respondent, and this is this is really kind of like the, the funny thing to me, his uh, competition is pretty steep. He's going up against a company called HDL Companies, which is more or less cornering the market on these types of mm -hmm. programs. They already are contracted with 200 separate California cities. Uh, and so they, they clearly have expertise. That is, I think, about... 40% of yeah. the total number of, of cities in California. Um, so they have a commanding market presence already. But Herb Wesson... <laughs> Every has, time you say his name, you, I like how you say his, both his first and last name. Oh, because like, I am... I, I, <laughs> Herb Wesson has a story to tell. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's, oh, it's funny. Wesson is positioning himself as somebody who is not a politician, which from somebody who was a, what? It said how, 34 years in elected 34 office. 34 years total, he was, right? He was, I remember at one point looking Speaker into where assembly. he came from and like, <laughs> I was looking in the LA Times, he's like a council aide in the early 80s yeah. in LA City Hall. Yeah, I mean, he, but so his, his quote is so funny. I am not a politician. Uh, it is his, his direct quote. Um, he is positioning himself as somebody who is a, not in politics, rather is a minority small business owner, uh, as contrasted with the, the larger HD, HDL companies. Um, but he's also saying, I've been in the position that you are in. So like I can see things from your angle. Also to say, um, so this this new company that he started, Herb Wesson and Associates, is this would be their first foray into uh into cannabis consulting. They haven't done that so far. Um, so really what he is banking on is his experience as the the person who put together the architect. I'm trying now. I'm trying <laughs> consciously trying to avoid that word as the Sorry. architect of uh, LA's city uh, department of cannabis regulations. So, like the question, I guess, is what is the nature of that experience? Right? Like, has that has that been a the the cannabis deregula uh, deregulation decriminalization has been fraught throughout California. But I don't necessarily get the the sense that people are looking to Los Angeles as an example of um, what to do, like you know how to, how to proceed with this. I don't know. Do you guys have uh, have you read anything about LA's cannabis program, or have you gotten a sense of how it is perceived elsewhere? I mean, I I think it's a similar uh, to many of the. Garcetti era programs and that it's very well branded and got a lot of attention. But when it came to rolling it out, it was significantly more difficult and has come under uh, quite a heavy uh, bit of criticism. 
the, the significant criticism was always uh, that Wesson made a point to say, we're going to make sure that like systems that people who were in theory, like prosecuted for weed in the past are going to get to go to the front of the line. Mm-hmm. Or like if, if you have a criminal record for cannabis possession or something like that, or like are a black or brown person in Los Angeles, you're going to get to go to the front of the line. And that was extremely fraud. And I don't believe it ever resulted because it, with with that that promise ever manifesting because the legal weed market in California is in it, it's I mean as you point out one company it's it's like not that one company but like if they're contracting with two hundred municipalities to do this it's already it's a big business that forecloses on anybody with the limited access to capital to like get in. And the, the mm-hmm. city of LA program was supposed to rectify that, but I, it didn't. It did like, not. It did not. And like, that's why it's still like MedMen is like the big, like like venture capital weed stuff is the, at least on the legal market. I mean, LA is it's also the weird because- in the, in the immediate, in the immediate future, there's not really a government structure to no. challenge that just being the complete takeover of it. The thing that I think is interesting for the city of LA though, is that you have this like parallel, like the medicinal market still exists. Like the Mm -hmm. pre-Prop 47 market exists, is much more loosely regulated and like is going on at the same time. And like, I'm still not totally clear on like how the, like I really actually, I guess that's a spot where we should look in more, but like the future of the like 1996 to like 20s, whatever it was, 14, 2016 market is like still here. And like, the city attorney's office does their very best to try and file their, you know, you, you're shut not, you're, down you file the shutdown, but like, it still is the same sort of situation as it was before. And that's also not taxed and is like, they were also not doing a good job of that before no. 2016. So it, it, it hasn't really substantially changed, but, um, but yeah, everything that you guys are saying is right. If we look at LA's, uh, LA's system, uh, the interesting thing about the social equity program, which was what was intended to move black and brown folks primarily to the front of the line, people who had had negative impacts on their lives from the war on drugs, from uh, from weed criminalization in the past, uh, that never did happen. And even uh, even structurally, when the program rolled out, it wasn't really that you would go to the front of the line because first they went through uh, the medical marijuana dispensaries under that regime. Anybody who was in good legal standing and had uh, validly acquired a license to do that, they were actually at the front of the line. Um, and then there were, I think, um, I think there was like even another intermediary layer there. And then there was the social equity program, which consisted of like a, a, a small number, a few hundred potential spots. And that was done in a first come first serve manner uh, in a way that was a complete disaster. Yes, online. It was online. And so the uh, the applications sold out or whatever, they were all taken, they were all spoken for within three minutes. And the city of LA is actually getting sued for this currently by uh, a woman, Karina Christmas, who's actually being represented by former state assembly member Mike Gatto. Um, and yeah, I know it's, 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 um, it's all very fraught, as you said earlier. Um, but this this person alleges, and actually there is video that was in, in uh, a report by Emily Alpert Reyes of the LA Times um, about a year ago of uh, Wesson's partner in this particular business, and a man named Andrew Westall, one of his former aides, indicating that they were aware that the, uh, they were aware immediately after the fact that 
a large number of people, about I think 200 of the roughly three to 400 total spots were able to secure their places before the official application period opened. Yes, that's right. And uh, and that there was some effort by the city to cover up or say that they thought that only two applicants had been able to get in early and those had then later been denied. And there was, uh, there was additional concern that, the, um, that a lot of the applicants maybe were computer bots, like people mm-hmm. would... You know, so it's not what it actually is. Social equity is it just handing these out to people that you have no idea what their credentials are, and also as a separate pool of people who are in early potentially because they have um, they have connections within city government. You know, it, this is not a model necessarily. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly not like a, a blue metal like <laughs> I was walking this out to Hawthorne to show you my wares sort of thing. <laughs> but. Um, but we'll see. I mean, like I said, LA County has a number of cities that still do not have uh, cannabis programs, but there are going to be more and more that are looking to roll them out. In Hawthorne's case, they want to do this before the state puts down additional requirements forcing them to do it. Um, so it, it is a lucrative market. and um, and Is it? Sorry. No, I mean <laughs> lucrative. Sorry. Uh, Consult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Consulting. Yes. Yeah, I'm not sure about the consultancy <laughs> is a lucrative market, and and that's sort of you know when when we have this movement from politicians into this space, I think that's something that we should be looking at closely. So we'll we'll definitely be interested to see what happens there. By no means a sure thing that that Herb Wesson would be select. I'm going to keep saying both his names, I guess. Uh, that he would be selected to to do this, and he's probably, in fact, the the underdog in this process. But we'll see. Uh, and then, lastly, we want to talk about the big news from this week, which is that California's legislative leaders and the governor Gavin Newsom have uh, reached an agreement on a well, actually. Uh, a far-reaching agreement on how to spend all of the enormous surplus, something like $75 billion, according to the governor's office, uh, and federal aid money for uh, the the remainder of the recovery period. So we really want to get into one aspect of that in particular, which is the rent relief package that Gavin Newsom's uh, allies are calling the largest in history, uh, $5.2 billion for repayment of uh, back rent that has been accrued, accrued over the course of the pandemic. Um, what is going on with this rent money? There were a lot of different takes on it. We're lucky enough to be with Alyssa, who wrote a full amazing article about this. What What is going on here? Well, it was really, really confusing because this is something that was announced actually weeks ago. And if you go even go back to like the beginning of January, it was right. floated, um, you know, even back then, like this would be a possibility that we could start to maybe pay all of it off. Um, and it's interesting the way that... All of, all of what? All, we have to say. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we haven't said that yet. <laughs> this would be... It would be the the back rent, basically, is what I'm calling it. You could say it's not technically canceling rent, which is what we were saying at the beginning of the pandemic, um, but it would be a rent forgiveness program that would basically erase if you had, um, you know, if you hadn't paid for one reason or another, which you didn't have to do, mm-hmm. um, you would you would get money to to pay that. 
And I think what's important to note is that um, it's the numbers, are, they, they don't actually sound as bad when you hear them. You're like, oh, that's not that much. Or that was my response, I think, too. And it's what some of the... Um, it's what some of the people who've been fighting this on behalf of the landlords have been saying. It's it's less than a million people that um, who owe about an average of four thousand seven hundred dollars. Doesn't sound like that much, but the the folks that I talked to at the Turner Center um, who have been studying this from the very beginning uh, for the state says that doesn't really capture people who say went into tremendous personal debt mm-hmm. to just to pay yeah. their rent this entire time. So what we are looking at here is like really actually getting the money to the tenants, um, letting them pay their debts and letting them pay the, the landlords, you know, what they owe them instead of the approach that had kind of been more embraced by the state and by legislators because they are listening to the California Apartment Association uh, in mm-hmm. their, who is literally just sitting on their shoulder and breathing into their ear. Um, <laughs> Possibly writing the bills. And, and, and put out this report this week that was like, you know, the economy's not that bad. You know, people are buying cars again. Uh-huh, so that's yeah. how we know that. And they actually make this argument that the, the longer the moratorium goes on, um, they are telling landlords that the reason the reason that you are not getting your full rent is because people are withholding it because they don't have to pay. So yeah. this is like this big oh. disinformation yeah. um, that that goes on to try to end the moratorium and send the money to landlords. Let me, let me go through the the existing program because it can definitely be a bit confusing. I was getting confused. It's more than it can be a bit. It is it extremely is, confusing. And there's multiple, there's multiple programs yeah. too. Yeah. Um, so, so what's happened since January? We talked about this a bit at the time, um, but as a, as a refresher for, for our listeners, the, the existing program was created under a bill called SB 91, which was uh, widely criticized at the time by tenants rights groups because this was uh, back when there was, a, again, as with right now, where eviction protections set by the state are set to expire June 30th without legislative action. At the time, it was a very similar thing. We were, we were looking at a uh, January 31st deadline to do this. The state could not come to an agreement, particularly... Uh, the governor was not able to agree with the the more liberal legislature uh, about what it is that they should do. They ended up going into negotiations with landlord lobbies directly, uh, but excluding tenants' rights groups. So what came out of that, SB 91, was a uh, a law that set terms under which nobody would be able to be evicted for their... Um, nobody would actually be put through the process of eviction uh, for rent debt that they had accrued during the course of the pandemic, uh, the legislature or the state rather would pay, would give uh, landlords the option to either accept 80% of the rent debt that had been accrued by their tenant and in uh, in exchange for forgiving 20% of that total amount if the landlords declined to do that, tenants would be eligible, um, not all tenants, specifically low-income tenants would be eligible to receive 25% of that amount, that being the minimum threshold set by the state that would prevent them from being able to be evicted for non-payment when eviction, pay, uh, uh, when eviction protections expire. 
So we have this system in which if you are if you are a tenant, a low income tenant, living in an apartment, unable to pay your rent as a result of the pandemic, the the system that we've set up is either you can you can apply for uh, for rent relief this eighty twenty setup, um, but your landlord can put the kibosh on it unilaterally. They can just say, okay, no, I don't want to do that for that particular tenant. And uh, the fear as expressed by tenants' rights groups is that uh, landlords are doing this because they would rather be able to evict the, they would rather be able to evict the tenant anyway, when it, especially if they are living in uh, in low-income housing or, or sorry, if they're living in rent-controlled housing, that is a, uh, a clear concern that they have. Actually, landlords have been buying out leases left and right. This is a particular uh, worry that people have expressed, the, the so-called self-eviction, um, because despite the state saying that they were going to pay out at the time $2.6 billion, again, this, this um, new proposal would double that amount, uh, they have given out less than $100 million of that approved money so far. Uh, this process has been extremely slow, and uh, they started in March, and they've they've so far gotten through like I think five to ten percent of the 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 sum that has been approved. Why why is that? Is it because people aren't applying for it? Is it because um, the program is receiving applications and then denying them for whatever reason? Like why? What is the what is like? That's a pretty indicting figure, what you just quoted right there. The state's sitting, it's had $2 billion. The need is more than $2 billion. The need is clearly here. Mm-hmm. What's the, where's the breakdown in the policy mechanism? It seems like there are breakdowns at a couple of different points. Uh, and for the part of, uh, you know, the the governor's allies and, and government officials working in uh, state departments, their explanation is it always takes time to get a new program like this off the ground. And there are always implementation, um, there are always lags in implementing something. I mean, that said, this is something where they, from the, the, the outset, gave themselves only three months to get this done. So if that is the case, you do have to ask the question of why was that not, uh, why was that not considered when the bill was the originally yeah. written, yeah. it seems like, and especially given the um, the extreme nature of the shortfall, it seems like there is more than that required to actually account for this. Uh, you asked a question about the the applications themselves. Yeah. yeah, is it the is it the state being slow, or is it like how do I, as a rent burden tenant in Los Angeles, actually apply? And is that different? Is there a state page? Like, I mean. Yeah, there is a, uh, there actually, there is a state page uh, housingiskey.com um, for anyone in Los Angeles though this, and this is where again it becomes uh, unfortunately very tricky for anyone in Los Angeles they would be directed from the housingiskey.site uh, housingiskey.com site to one of either the county uh, of Los Angeles's programs or the city of Los Angeles's programs. This $2.6 billion, and again, for uh, the full $5.2 billion that we're talking about now, is not fully distributed by the state. Some cities and counties are working in partnership to, uh, to levy the, the funds through their own programs. Um, so, but the, the bigger problem with the applications, particularly earlier in the spring was that they were very, very, 
involved and required something like three hours of dedicated time to complete. Um, the state worked with federal governments to reduce that to now, I guess, about a half an hour is what they're saying. That has increased applications. But uh, on the whole, they still have only received for the state-administered funds about uh, applications and about half the total amount of that funding. Despite that we know that the need exists, um, the way that this program is set up seems like it has not lent itself to people actually following through on this process. Again, it puts a lot of burden on the tenants, uh, particularly if the landlord is just wanting them out anyway. Uh, it, it, so it, it is now uh, creating a situation where despite the need that exists, people have not applied. Uh, the, the legislature is hoping, I think, to circumvent some of that with the new program under AB 832, which is going to be the 100% payoff. So even if you've already gone through the process of the 80-20 program, you would get the remaining 20% that wasn't previously paid off uh, for, uh, for, for clearing your rent debt. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, and, I, and I think that that's one part of it, but that could probably be solved if they really put their mind to it. You know, we've gotten um, stimulus payments to people. You know, we've, they've done a really good job. But part of the, the stimulus that we had by the state, a lot of that went as one-time payments to families, uh, particularly ones that had kids, got extra money that were in the same income bracket, you know, the low, the lowest income bracket. Um, so I think they can do that. I, I do want to go back to your earlier point about how without additional protections in place, a lot of this is meaningless because once the moratorium uh expires, which is a little different here in LA because our our situation is you have 12 months to pay back your rent from the day we end the emergency order, which I don't know when that is going to be ended. No one does. Um, so we have you have a lot of time, but without things like anti-harassment um, policies in place, which we did as a city just put into place this week, uh, mm -hmm. Councilmember Nithya Raman's uh, motion, which is something that we, you know, that we didn't have. I mean, and, and a lot of other places in the state have nothing like that. So what does that mean? Anti-harassment? It, anti it means, well, it, it's the, it's the scenario that you were just talking about before. So you, you get your rent paid and then the moratorium ends and then your landlord still finds a way to get rid of you or, you know, <laughs> you know, just to chase you out or, or a, an eviction for say a prior, um, pandemic, uh, fault that, like, that they have. You have no hot water now. Sorry. I've, yeah. I'm working on it. Yeah. Like I, I don't have any money because the California apartment association didn't lobby effectively for my, um, <laughs> Mortgage forgiveness. That's right. not true. That, that it's actually happening. But, <laughs> but oh like, no, I'm sure that is being said. Though. I'm sure that's being said. Yeah, the the um, the financial um, d you know d financially distraught landlord narrative is that you know we don't have any money to make repairs. We're hearing these things, you know, from from people from tenants. So I think just like to look at like the overall, it, it the overall fix is not completely fixed until we again just really strengthen. Um, how renters are treated in this in the state and and have a renter forward and renter focused um legislature which we do not yeah we still don't i mean and and i mean to 
to the credit of so I mean the big the big news here is certainly about the extension of the uh, the eviction protections that now have been extended four times uh, to the chagrin of the California Apartment Association. They were quite disappointed with that announcement um, and and have like you said pursued a line that protections are no longer needed and that the recovery is is going fine and, and people can pay their back rent on their own, basically. People can get any job that they want is what they said. Yeah, um, but so to, to the credit of the two leaders of the, the housing committees, uh, David Chu in the assembly and Scott Weiner in the Senate, they have repeatedly been the ones pushing for uh, a, a greater tenant focus here, but the the results really haven't changed significantly. So we have a situation where, uh, despite the fact that we're getting headlines across the nation about this rent relief program, $5.2 billion is, of course, a huge sum of money. It's all coming from federal sources um, and it's being called rent forgiveness. Uh, that gets a lot of eyes on it, but it isn't really it isn't really what people think that it's going to be. In in terms that we've used before, what this really is is a continuing bailout for landlords. Of course, I mean you have to caveat that with the fact that if the state actually can't give out the money, like if they can't functionally find a way to distribute the money, then it's not really an effective bailout for landlords either. Um, but that is really what they are primarily hoping to accomplish by that. This is a penny for penny repayment for um, for anybody collecting rent who has lost out on rent during the during the pandemic, if their tenants are low income. Right, and and again, this means testing. You know, there are other programs if you can prove that you had financial hardship and you are in like a middle income bracket. There are different ways to get subsidized rent and or you know payments, things like that. But um, it's a it's again this you know the the paperwork, the application, all this stuff, and then on top of it, you have some people who there was a story in the LA Times and in in other publications, people who have just left their apartments because mm-hmm. they've self-evicted because mm-hmm. they've been so terrified because if you had known from the beginning that this would have been a, poss- have been a possibility, you might have lived your life differently over the last yeah. 15 or 16 months. Like sure. you you really could have had a... Um, just the stress alone, right? These people have gone through. The the self-eviction too ties directly into this administrative question about getting the funds out because the way the the program exists and and will continue to exist when when the new AB 832 uh, program goes into place is that you need to be able to have paid 25% of your rent by the day that the eviction protections end. Currently, that's June 30th. Under this plan, it will be extended to September 30th. the thing is, even if you have successfully applied for this program, even if your landlord has de- denied you the ability to get that 80% paid by the state and the 20% forgiven, then the state should have been giving you the bare m- minimum that you needed to prevent mm-hmm. an eviction when the eviction protections uh, el- uh, lapse. But they haven't done that for almost everybody. So uh, so if, for example, the state was unable to come to an agreement by the time the protections lapse on, it would be Friday of this week, um, or sorry, Thursday of this week, then you would be on the hook for that because the state didn't give you, mm-hmm. or sorry, the state didn't give your landlord mm-hmm. the 25% of money that you owed 
in time, you would be able to be evicted. Right. So people have been self-evicting. People have been taking buyouts. People have been doing all of these things because there was just no certainty. And if you reach that cliff, you are uh, you're on the hook for all of the consequences. Um, so it looks like we will have avoided that, but not before many people did elect to take those options because, as Alyssa was saying, of the stress of having to live with the uncertainty of what was actually going to happen. Um, and so, I mean, I mean, for the part of tenants' rights advocates, they have been saying all along that this is too much of a landlord-centered approach. Um, Alyssa mentioned earlier, it doesn't take into account other types of debt. And only now are we getting uh, are we getting policies that actually will give the uh, the tenants themselves money, and in that case, only if the landlord declines to uh, to take part in it, then the tenant will get that hundred percent of the back rent that they owe or that they owe, but they can only use it on rent. Um, so it's a very narrowly tailored approach here, and one that is primarily focused on making landlords whole. I mean, the thing that I think, I mean, I believe it was one of the, I think it was a Republican assembly member who was making the point that, oh, this isn't the right thing to do. It's it's just, it's a one-time event. That's uh, No, that was Kevin Falconer. Yeah, Kevin Falconer. Falconer. His, uh, but like, sh- I, but like it's also, yeah, that's the whole point. Let's like it is a one-time thing. Time. Like one, because I, I think the thing that I'm thinking about a lot with this is like, that I haven't really seen directly connected, at least in political rhetoric, is like, on one hand, I sit through like an LA City Council meeting where you have like Kerr and Price talking about like, well, we need to focus on homelessness prevention, blah, 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 blah. And like a one-time erasure of rent debt like this is literally homelessness prevention for some number of people. Like bear in mind that like the eviction machine most people who get evicted are getting evicted for non-payment of rent because yep. that's mm-hmm. just how it works. Uh, people become too poor to stay in their unit. They stay in their unit until they have to vacate and then moving on. And like this, is, this interrupts that. Like there's so much concentration on like on homelessness. It's like, well, how do we mitigate the inflow? The issue is that there's always more people falling to mm-hmm. the street than like back. A state pile of money, five point two, five more than that, or what was it? It's five point two billion. It is. It's five point two billion dollars at the state level, earmarked to pay rent, is a prevention. It it stops inflow for mm-hmm. the immediate near term if you can pull it off, which it doesn't seem like it's being pulled off in that way. If people are leaving their apartments, self evicting, and then going, where yeah. are you moving into your vehicle? Like, I mean, there's that's and that's. To the point of like, this was unclear from the very beginning. If you want to like make people feel more secure in their homes, you message something like that from the very beginning and yeah. say, the state is here for you. We're going to cover one. As we are now, it's like, we're going to we're gonna endeavor to cover 100% of your misrent and like ensure that you're not going to fall through the cracks. Yeah. What we have right here is something that's very, very leaky. And like people have already left and like gone to, like, I'm sure there's people who have become homeless during the, during, who have like, over the last 15 months have fallen down to the street who in theory didn't have to do that because they could have stayed in their apartment. And like, sure, I'm not saying you're economically secure now. And like after September 30, or September 31, um, <laughs> that was, that was there and early typo. thing. Is, yeah. But like you, you, it's, it's not fixing it after that into October into the future, but like in theory, that's somebody who like, could have remained in their home through now and then 
the state would have compensated the property owner fully for the amount of rent that was missed during that time. Whereas that's not at all what occurred. And like, it's, I mean, I don't know, it's just like, it's the importance of like, not just doing the program, getting the policy right, but making sure that people who are, uh, who need the help the most, like actually know about it and can rely on you, which right now nobody expects. The expectations are remarkably low for public assistance. Um, and like people don't trust it. So they're just like, okay, well, I'll just leave and go move into my car for this time period and see what happens next. I mean, it's, it's almost a, a direct contrast to, uh, to something else that we've talked about, which is of course the, the scandal roiling the, um, EDD, the, the yeah. state's, yeah. um, disability and, and un- unemployment program where they took an an alternate approach, which was, we're just going to approve everybody and send checks as fast as we can. And then there were potentially billions of dollars in fraud. Um, The fact that we can take both of these paths and do both of them very incompetently is not really an encouraging sign. Um, But I I, want to say too, just to, to round out our discussion, one of the things that is... Uh, one of the things that is important to note about Los Angeles County is that we have by far the greatest share of yeah. any county of of uh, households and also um, the quantity of rent debt. We have 250,000 households with some rent debt. We have uh, a staggering 1.2 billion of the estimated 3.5 billion in the state of California in rent debt. Um, so the, the need here is extreme. And even as other parts of the state have seen uh, low applications to this program, the city of Los Angeles um, has received applications that amount to more than twice as much of their allocation of the state pile. That's because uh, this was done, not, pr- not prioritized according to need, not allocated according to need, but rather just based on population. So um, you have a place where the conditions are ripe for the the uh, accumulation of rent debt, such as Los Angeles, with high cost of living and lots of low wage workers, uh, and we see we see the the outcome of that. Half of half of the state allocation has been applied for. More than twice as much of LA's allocation has been applied for. AB eight three two does sort of address that issue in that it allows for the state to reallocate to other. Uh, jurisdictions based on need. That was something that uh, Mayor Garcetti and Hilda Solis, supervisor of, of the first district here, had um, had advocated for. So that is a good sign. But again, it all comes down to, can we get the money into people's hands? And I mean, given that we've only done less than 10% of the, the allocated funding in three months, do we really expect that we're going to do not 95%, but 195% of that amount in the next three months. And just a, a one last criticism of how this has been um, publicized. You know, they like I said, this wasn't new news. This was something that had just been, you know, being negotiated. And as advocates started to push, 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 um, Newsom went to the New York Times and had them write the story that made it seem like the deal was done and right. that some amazing thing had occurred. And even I got, you know, fooled by it <laughs> at first because it was just really hard to tell like what 
what was what had been accomplished with that point at that point, which had been nothing up to then. So just a way of like again, who are we serving here, and and what are, are we trying to impress? Talk about all, all, all this whole episodes about how we are, you know, have inferiority and want to impress people right. in other parts of the country. Um, are we just trying to make headlines here? Or are we actually helping people? You know, you're uh, you want to enlist the tourism industry, right? The tourism <laughs> industry is yeah. If we deeply, can't get those tourists back, well, the tourism industry is <laughs> is deeply not so much publicly, but deeply concerned about visible homelessness in Southern <laughs> California, and it's like. Uh, well, if you want that to stop, you need to focus on prevention and lowering inflows. So, so enlist the tourism tell. industry to yes. figure out how to get the five point two wow, billion Matt, dollars. Wow, Matt, you figured out. it out. You really, so, you really tied it all back together. And I'm that sure is there's, absolutely sure there's true. someone who thinks about that. <laughs> Let's ask the sheriff what he thinks about that. Rent week. relief brought to you by Hilton Rewards. Hilton honors. Hilton honors. Remember that Discover LA campaign where it was like, or whatever it was, it was if like the state if, of California if, just gave if you two hundred fifty thousand yes. households in Los Angeles County forty seven hundred dollars, <laughs> homelessness would go down by X percent. Yeah. <laughs> that is our show. Uh, thank you everybody for listening to episode one hundred and eighty of LA Podcasts. If you are interested in supporting us, you can go to the support us link at the LAPod.com. $5 a month gets you access to our Sepulveda Pass with extra content on Patreon. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we will have a brand new interview with Lexis Olivier Ray from LA Taco later this week that we're very excited about. So stay tuned for that and we will see you next Monday. Next Monday.